Please do take your Bibles once again to turn to John chapter 3. And we'll read verses 13, 14, and 15 together this morning. John chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. And just before we start to read, we remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And we do ask God to bless these words to our heart this morning. You know, the manner in which we are offered something uh, often depends uh, or results in a particular response from us. If you're walking through the street, and we've all been there, and somebody waves a can in front of your face, and you're on your, your way to an important meeting, you're, you're not likely to appreciate that interruption and be so uh, happily disposed to do what they want you to do. But if you were to go into a shop that was respectable and upmarket, uh, and a salesperson comes to you and politely asks if they can help, then you're, you're perhaps more adjusted uh, to receive that offer better. The Lord Jesus Christ in these three verses that we have spoken about this morning is speaking about how he brings the new birth, how he brings salvation to men and to women. And as we've been going through John chapter 3, we see that Jesus really is trying to teach this man Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus approached Jesus, he came to Jesus first, but Jesus is taking the opportunity uh, to teach Nicodemus. His instruction is going deeper. His explanation of the new birth is taking on an ever greater urgency. And here is Nicodemus really faced with the decision, will I or won't I trust in what Jesus is saying? The manner in which Jesus deals with Nicodemus will have a bearing on how Nicodemus truly responds to him. And what Jesus is looking to explain is actually salvation. He's looking to explain how you can become a Christian, how you can be saved. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this isn't a matter of philosophical debate. It's not a matter of psychiatric intervention. Jesus here is not prescribing a self-help course. He's not even giving some kind of psychological band-aid to stick over the wounds that are perhaps on Nicodemus' life. But Jesus is clear that Nicodemus must do something. Or perhaps, to put it more accurately, Nicodemus must have something done to him uh, that would change his life. Nicodemus needs, as every man, every woman needs, he needs God's salvation. Jesus Christ calls it new birth or new life here. But it is salvation. It is forgiveness of sin. And so Nicodemus needs to change his views. He needs to change his opinions. He has to alter his approach to life that he might receive from Jesus Christ this great gift that Jesus wants to give him, the new birth. And so to put it bluntly, Nicodemus, the scholar of the Old Testament, the Pharisee, the leader of the Jews, he has to stop seeking knowledge and he has to find faith. Now we remind ourselves that Nicodemus was not some poor soul that found himself in the gutter. He's respectable, he's learned, he's capable. But he was still hopeless. Because none of these things that were in his life could help him. He was as lowly before God 
as the alcoholic, as the adulterer, as the murderer, as the gambler, as the procrastinator, as the uneducated, or even those who are not Jewish. Nicodemus is in precisely the same boat. And so we may ask ourselves, just having cursorily read these three verses, what does this passage mean to me? What does this passage matter to my circumstances? Well, I repeat again what we have been saying for the last few weeks. You must be born again. It tells us that. But the particulars of these three verses centers on what Jesus Christ does to give his new birth. And what we have read in these three verses this morning tells that Jesus Christ is the offerer of the new birth. And he does this. He offers it in three particular ways. Firstly, and we'll go through this in more detail, but in verse 13, Jesus Christ offers the new birth because he is the source of the new birth. It comes from above. It comes from God. Secondly, in verse 14, we see that Jesus Christ offers the new birth because he is the Savior. He has done what is necessary to make God's salvation available to all people. And thirdly, in verse 15, we see that Jesus Christ is the substance of the new birth. He is the focus of what takes place in regenerating the sinner and giving him this new life. And so we'll take time just to go through these three verses so that we might examine, that we might understand, and most importantly, that we might accept how Jesus Christ offers the new birth. Let's look at verse 13. And here we see that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, He is the source of the new birth. You know, to speak of a matter with authority requires something more than just knowledge. It requires experience. We all know what it's like for somebody to say, oh, so-and-so can talk a good game. They can talk it, they can explain it, but they can't actually do it. But here Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus and saying, well, it's only me, Jesus Christ, who can speak of God with truth and accuracy. Why? Well, Jesus is God. Jesus was with God. Jesus is representing God to man. He has this ability. He has this authority. And Jesus here says, it's only the one who has ascended into heaven. Only the one who themselves can go into heaven. And you know, no person, no human has the ability to ascend into heaven. They can't do it on their own strength or by their own desire. It's only Jesus Christ who has the ability, the power, and the position to go into heaven. It's humanly impossible to go to heaven. Listen to Proverbs 30 verse 4. And it says this, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Now, in a sense, this is just a series of rhetorical questions. Questions where the answer is assumed to be known. And the answer, of course, here is nobody but God goes into heaven. Nobody but God can gather the wind in his fist and so on. Now, some might argue and say, ah, but there were those who did not die and they still went to heaven. And you would point to Enoch and Elijah. But they didn't decide to go to heaven. It wasn't their decision, but it was God who caught them up. And we are told in Scripture that they were taken up. In Hebrews 11, verse 5, Enoch was taken up. And in 2 Kings 2 and 3, Elijah was taken up into heaven. They didn't do it because they wanted to. It was God who did it to them. 
And so we see that Jesus Christ is the source of the new birth. And there's two particular ways that he's the source of the new birth. The first is he's the source of God's revelation. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ brings God's message to men and to women today. Jesus has made it clear to Nicodemus that the profound teaching of heaven is beyond Nicodemus. It's beyond the human mind, but it's not beyond the mind of Jesus Christ. Christ has been in heaven. He has witnessed what has taken place in heaven. And even more so than that is God, he's ordained what takes place in heaven and so he can bring it down to man. Christ was with the Father. And so Christ is the only one who is qualified to reveal God's plan of salvation. Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. The message comes from Jesus Christ. This isn't man-made, it's not fabricated, but it is a divine message that comes from God to people. And Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to share the mind of God. The Bible tells us four ways that he is uniquely qualified. He is one with the Father, John 10, verse 13. He had glory with the Father in heaven, John 17, verse 5. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, Matthew eleven twenty seven. And Jesus Christ brings God to man, Matthew 1, verse 23. And so Jesus Christ, he is the source of God's revelation. You don't find God's revelation in any, way, any other way. Some might say, ah, but what about Romans 1, where it speaks about creation revealing God? Well, that is a, a general call that every person can see, but the message of salvation, the revelation of God's plan of redemption comes from Jesus Christ alone. But the second thing we see about Christ being the source is he's the source of authority. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, that is quite an authoritative position to be in. You know how you go into a building and you see a door that says restricted access, authorized personnel only. And you just say to yourself, I wish I could go through that door and see what's on the other side. There's probably a 30-foot drop the other side of it just to see if anybody's silly enough to try. But Jesus Christ has the authority, not just to go into this world, but to go into heaven. And what Jesus Christ is, in a sense, doing here, he's debunking every claim that is made that people have gone to heaven and have come back. The Bible does give some notable example, uh, exceptions. Lazarus in John 11, uh, those who were raised from the dead as Jesus died on the cross in Matthew 27, and Paul himself, who was taken up into heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There are exceptions, but they're not the rule. And because they are so few and far between, we see that that is not really what happens. People don't go into heaven and they certainly don't come back. Christ alone can speak of heaven because he has authority to do so. He's not a representative who's just speaking what he's been told to say, like the, the prophets. Nor is he an agent that's employed to make decisions on behalf of somebody else. No, Jesus Christ is the full person of God. His will is the will of God because he is God. And Christ does not only possess the message, Christ is not only the one who wrote the message, but Jesus Christ himself is the message. And that is authority beyond all manner of means. But there's just this little phrase that we encounter at the end of, of verse 13. And it's the phrase that says, 
the Son of Man. You know, this is a phrase that is used over 80 times in the gospel. And in all but one use, it's the phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself. And it most likely comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that speaks there about how the Son of Man has great authority and is rewarded with great glory. And Jesus, yes, in using this title, the Son of Man, is speaking about his humanity, but he's speaking about his authority, his authority to bring the message of God down into this world. Listen to the words of Charles Wesley. I was just speaking before the service about how uh, the kind of removal of, of these traditional hymns are sometimes to the detriment of Christians and to the church. But Charles Wesley, a notable hymn writer, uh, did pen these words that say, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree to praise in songs divine, the incarnate deity, our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. God who is man brings the message of God to man. And Christ offers this new birth, this new life because he is the source of that life. So what does this matter to you? Of what relevance is this to you this morning that Jesus Christ is the source of the new birth? Well, you know, Jesus Christ offers you precisely what he owns and what he has. He is life. You cannot look for God's life and salvation anywhere else. This new birth is God's revelation. He's showing you how he saves you. Christ is showing this to you that he gives it to you because he comes from heaven with salvation for your soul. And this new birth is given to you under the authority of God. You know, you're not stealing it from God. You're not convincing God. But you're receiving directly from God what he offers to you freely, without cost. That your life might be transformed. Do you know this new birth? Christ is the source of the new birth. But Christ also offers the new birth because of something further. Something more in his person, something deeper in his character. And we see in verse number 14 that Jesus Christ offers a new birth because he is the Savior. And as we come into verse 14, we are actually coming to a very, very early indication in the ministry of Jesus Christ that he had to be crucified. Not that he just had to be put to death, but he had to be put to death in a particular way. And the crucifixion is central. It's absolutely central. It's the crux of the matter of the new birth. And in verse, uh, verse 14, we see that Jesus Christ speaks about being lifted up. And that little phrase, lifted up, it occurs three times in John's gospel. This is the first occasion. Then we read of it in John 8, verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. This is God's plan of salvation. Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross. This is the third time in John 12, verse 32. He says, and if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. If Jesus Christ is crucified, the cross being the event that changes all history, if he does this, then sinners will be brought to him and sinners will be saved because of him. And so what Jesus does in verse number 14 
as he's speaking to Nicodemus is he takes this Old Testament expert. Nicodemus is a scholar. He takes this man who would have been an expert on the life of Moses. If Nicodemus had to go on to mastermind, his specialist subject very well could have been the life and times of Moses. But Jesus takes Nicodemus and reveals something to Nicodemus that he would not have understood from the life of Moses. And we read earlier in the service the story of Moses in the desert with this bronze snake. The people of Israel had sinned. They'd complained to God. They'd complained about Moses. And so God sent these snakes into the camp to punish them. And if you were bitten by a snake, too bad, you died. And all of a sudden the people, they, they catch on to the mistake. They, they understand what has taken place is wrong. And, and they see the consequences of their sin. And they do the only thing that they can do. And is they go to Moses and they say, Moses, help us. We've sinned. And so Moses does the only thing that he can do, and that is he goes to God and he says, God, these people, they're repenting of their sin, they're looking for forgiveness. And God says, well, here's the answer. Go and melt down some bronze and sculpt the statue of a snake, then put it on a pole and lift that pole up in the middle of the camp. And so if there is anybody who is bitten and looks at that snake on a pole, they will live. And so God provided a people, a way for the people to be set free from the death that came from their sin. And this is how the Old Testament helps us understand just how Jesus Christ offers a new birth by being the Savior. And the first thing that Jesus Christ is the Savior is, he's the Savior who delivers from rebellion. These people in the desert that Jesus is speaking of, they were impatient, they spoke against God, they mocked God, they spoke against Moses, they mocked Moses. And yet in their sin, Moses comes and speaks on their behalf. It's only through Moses that the punishment of the snakes is taken away. It's only through Moses' intervention that a healthy relationship with God was restored. But yet, we should be clear in saying that it's not the work of Moses, but it's the work of God, his grace, offering salvation. Moses didn't save these people, but yet Jesus Christ does save people. Moses did something that was outside himself. He made a bronze snake. But Jesus Christ saves people completely within himself because he's the one that's put on the cross. And this bronze snake, it was only a temporary measure. But the salvation that Jesus Christ gives is a permanent measure. He comes and he saves us from our rebellion. You know, God says when we sin, we deserve one punishment only, and that punishment is death. God, in sending Jesus Christ, gives us a Savior who saves us from eternal death. Well, we don't face physical death like the Israelites did, but we're faced with something far worse. It's an eternity that's spent out with the presence of God. And yet, through Jesus Christ, we're not cast out, but we're brought in. Through Jesus Christ, we're not enemies, but we are children. And so the death of Jesus Christ is absolutely vital for you, that he might save you in your rebellion. But the second way that we see that Jesus Christ is the Savior is that he is exalted for all eternity to be lifted up. Doesn't just speak about his death, but it speaks about him being lifted up to glory. Now, we might find it very strange that somebody could be put on a cross, an instrument of torture, an instrument of execution, an instrument of shame, be put on a cross, and that actually being 
a matter of his honor and his glory. But the cross is the heart, it's the center of God's plan of redemption. And because Jesus Christ allowed himself to be placed upon it, the cross is a mark of his glory because it shows he is willing to die for your sin. It tells us that he was willing to pay the price for sin. It tells us that he is opening up salvation to each and every person who would come to him and would look upon him and have faith in him. And I wonder if we truly see the glory of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, he had no need to die for us. But he desired that he would die for us. He has no need of us being in heaven with him. But he died that we might inherit eternal life. And so his choosing to save you is entirely so that his glory might be seen in all things. And that should be a constant matter of joy in the heart of the Christian. It says you're not lost, but you're found. It says you're not dead, but you're alive. It says you're not rejected, but you're accepted. It says you're not only physically born, but you're spiritually born and you will spend eternity with him. And so let me encourage you that if you belong to Jesus Christ, live your life so that his glory might be seen through you. You know, his glory is seen in your salvation. His glory is witnessed in your sanctification. And his glory is proclaimed in your worship of him. And so Jesus Christ is the source of the new birth. He's the savior of the new birth. But finally, he's the substance of the new birth. Verse 15. You know, there is a condition placed upon receiving the new birth. It is free. It costs you nothing in terms of material things. But there's a condition that says you must meet this condition in order to receive the new birth. And verse 15 tells us about this. You know, the new birth is freely given, but it requires a response from you. The new birth can be received by you today, but it requires a response from you. The new birth can be yours for all eternity, but today it requires a response from you. Because what Jesus Christ is in the substance of the new birth is he is the object of faith. It says this, verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him. And our series in John is simply entitled Believing in the Son of God. And that tells us that the matter of belief is central and critical to the message that John is sharing. Belief is at the heart of the matter. And so it comes to us this morning that we must understand what it is to believe. The Greek word for belief here is the Greek word pistuo. And this word means to believe, to have faith in, to trust in. But what does that mean? Well, let me just try and illustrate this for you. A few years ago, I was visiting Northern Ireland and we went to the north of Northern Ireland and there's a rope bridge there called Karakarid. Now, as you're getting to know, I'm quite scared of heights. But this is a rope bridge that stretches for 66 feet over a precipice that is about 100 feet down. And you know, as you go over it, it's buffeted by wind and often by rain. And you go from the mainland to this tiny island over this rope bridge that is swaying to and fro. And I read somewhere that last year about half a million people visited this rope bridge and went across it. 
You know, your head tells you that you'll get across. Your eyes tell you that you'll get across because there's loads of other people on the island that's across there. And you know in your head that many people have done it safely in, in the past. But as you peer over the edge, your heart sometimes questions, will this hold up? In fact, I believe that there have been people who have been airlifted off the bridge because they've gone so far across and they're so petrified by what they see below that they just simply freeze. Let me just boast, I made it across and back. <laughs> but this tells us about this matter of faith. Because you know in your head you can understand everything. You can understand everything. You could even memorize great chunks of the Bible. And you could be able to quote them better than any Christian. But in your heart, they mean nothing to you. Knowledge does not save you. But faith does. Knowledge does not take you across a bridge, but faith does. Knowledge of Jesus Christ does not save you, but faith in him does. Oh, you need knowledge, and you need to know him, and you need to offer him, but it's your faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. So what is this faith? Well, we can see what faith is not. John 6, verse 36, Jesus said, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Faith is not seeing. Faith is not found by the physical vision of the eyes. But we, we read in Hebrews 11 verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being persuaded that what Jesus Christ says he is, what Jesus Christ says he has done, is absolutely and entirely and eternally true. And the third thing about faith is that it never comes on its own. Mark 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So faith is not about what you see. Faith is what you are convicted of. And faith will always be accompanied by repentance. And this is what Nicodemus is called to do here. He's brought to the cusp of believing. He's brought to the edge of repenting. And now it's down to Nicodemus. Will he or won't he? And of course, this is not some abstract issue or matter. It's relevant and it's present. And let me tell you this morning that it is for you. What do you put your faith in? Have you got faith in yourself? Well, have you ever let yourself down? That's the worst thing that my parents could ever say to me. You've let yourself down. Do you have faith in other people? Well, do other people let you down? Do you have faith in money? Just look at the economy. Do you have faith in employment and your own strength? Well, no job's truly forever and our strength gets weaker as we grow older. If you've got faith in anything that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith is wrongly placed. And so whoever has faith in Jesus Christ has this new birth. And I say to you today, come to him. Have faith in him. He is the crucified lamb of God who will take away your sin. Well, Jesus Christ is the substance by being the object of faith, but he's also the substance by being the guarantee or the guarantor of heaven. Because verse 15 concludes and says, you know, 
Whoever believes in him will, what? Have eternal life. And you'll recall that what was promised to Nicodemus was a new birth. And we have seen that the new birth is required to see the kingdom of God. Verse 3 in John chapter 3. Eternal life or heaven is required uh, or requires this faith in order to be seen. Eternal life is a wonderful thing. And it's fully defined and explained by Jesus himself in John 17 verse 3. Where he said, this is eternal life. That, you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. Because to know God and to know Jesus Christ is not some passing acquaintance. It is an eternal relationship that will never end. Jesus is not just saying that eternal life lasts for a long time. He's not just saying that eternal life is a wonderful thing. But he's saying that uh, eternal life is everlasting, John 3.16 Eternal life is life that is united to Christ, Galatians 2 verse 20. Eternal life is life for the age to come, Ephesians 2 verses 6 and 7. And eternal life is life that shares in the perfect, never-ending glory and joy of God, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And this is what Jesus guarantees to Nicodemus. That if you have faith, if you have this new birth, then you know heaven will be your eternal destination. Heaven will be your eternal reward. Heaven will be your eternal pleasure. And Jesus Christ makes it abundantly clear that this is all brought about by the work of his cross. And so let me just encourage you this morning that the offer of eternal life is extended to you. It's not just for some people and not others. But if you are to receive this eternal life, then you must come to Jesus Christ in faith. You know you can look elsewhere, but you'll be sorely disappointed. You can convince yourself that there has to be another way, but there's not. Let me ask you, how many ways is there to boil an egg? There's one way. It's in water. Don't try the microwave, it doesn't work. But let me tell you, don't try to find salvation, eternal life, anywhere except in Jesus Christ. Because it does not work. Jesus Christ is one. He has procured and he's secured eternal life at the cost of his own precious blood. And that, that sacrifice deserves more than just respect. It demands that you fall before him in submission. You know, the pride of your heart it might keep you from doing this. But you have to overcome your refusal and come to Jesus Christ and give him your whole life. If you're not in Christ today, then do not delay. But you know, if you are in Christ, then please find maximum comfort in this great truth. You are Christ's. He's bought you at a price that nobody can calculate. He will keep you for all eternity. He can't lose you. And he's returning for you. And he offers you this new birth, this new life, this salvation today. You know, the command, you must be born again, it's not an empty suggestion, but it's a necessity. And Christ offers it by being the source of this new birth. 
He is the source of God's revelation. He is the source of authority. Jesus Christ offers this new birth to you by being the Savior. He was lifted up and died on the cross to deliver you from rebellion. And he will be glorified forevermore because he is exalted for all eternity. And Jesus Christ is thirdly the substance of the new birth. The lost sinner believes upon Christ and is saved. He is the object of faith. And Jesus Christ is the one who assures us that we will never be lost. He is the guarantee of heaven. One of the hymns I love to sing in its second verse says this. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. If you've not received a new birth, then today come to Jesus Christ. Know that without the new birth, you are lost. But if you have received the new birth, worship in spirit and in truth. Rejoice that you are saved. And give Jesus Christ all the glory because he is the one who offers the new birth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we have spent together, time that has been spent in reflection, time that has been spent in celebration of what others do and what happens in other parts of our country. And we have spent time today just simply reflecting on your word and how the Lord Jesus Christ is the giver of the new birth. May we know that truth today. May we understand that he comes to us and he gives to us and he saves us. And may we be willing and ready to come to him and to receive this great salvation that only he can give. Help us, we pray, for we ask in his precious, most holy name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.